Because you know what? My feelings have failed me all my life. And you can't base anything on feelings. Right? You can't, like, for instance, whether you like something or not doesn't make it true or not true. So based on that experience, I cannot be satisfied with, I feel safe because I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. Whether I feel safe or not, or good or not, or less scared or not, does not, to me, qualify as a truth. And so I need a little more than what my feelings because I think my logic has developed over time because, because my feelings have screwed me up, screwed me over, confused the heck out of me, and other people's feelings have confused me. So logic, to me, is a safe space. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. morning, Lindsay. Good morning, Robert. It's good to be back in the morning. It is. It is. We are We are definitely not evening podcasters. Yeah, we should just like put right in the title from now on that it's a night episode, so it's like optional. <laughs> it's like a, a bonus yeah. night episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a bonus night episode and there was no drinking and... Maybe that was the problem. The, yeah. There was no drinking. <laughs> Here we are. Mm. It's morning. We have coffee. We're a little bit more awake, alert, alive, enthusiastic. There used to be a Boy Scout song that we would sing. I can't remember it, but it was like a, we're awake, alert, alive, enthusiastic. Randomness. <laughs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, we... Hmm. Scouts are always cranky in the morning. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know what to say beyond that, but okay. <sighs> so, I'm very curious, because you kind of told me you had a question for me up front. You didn't text me the question, but you texted it to me as I'm sitting upstairs watching The Simpsons with my kids, which is this whole little parenting avenue for me. But you had a question based in... Parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Parenting. This is a question that I think about probably every day, and I'm never really sure which side of the question to come down on, depending on the day. But here is our family corner question. Um, how do you... Is that what we're calling this? Is it? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. <laughs> the family corner. All right, sorry, hmm. sorry. I'm being distracted. I guess the corner yes. isn't always like associated as a good thing in a family. It's like the corner. Go to the corner. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, I am the, the troublesome child. But yes, all right. Our family question of the day. Yes. We'll just okay. call it that. Family question of the day. How do you as a parent balance between modeling, serving, and loving others versus instilling a sense of independence and doing things for yourself and learning how to function as an independent human being? So for instance, my eight-year-old says, Mom... Can you make me toast? I know my eight-year-old can make her own toast. So do I 
say, no, honey, you can get your own toast, or of course, honey, I'd love to get you toast because I love you. That is the tension I'm not really sure where to fall in. You know, I have asked and I have wondered about this, and I don't have any kind of clear-cut answer. Like, at all. And, and I guess part of that is, to me, the question in my head has been, how do I empower them with the confidence to do X, Y, or Z? So, again, if my kids ever listen to this stuff and I'm talking about you, just know I love you first and foremost, and you're going to have these questions as, as a parent and adult yourself. But, like, I, I love my daughter. She is... She's an incredible and compassionate and ingenious young lady. And I don't know why, but she struggles with self-confidence. In big and little things. But it also manifests weirdly. Alright, so. I'll give this example. This weekend, we were supposed to have a second attempt at a grandparent's weekend. The first attempt was supposed to be last weekend, I wound up with the stomach flu, we were going to do it this weekend, and then Thursday morning, at four in the morning, my daughter kicks the door into the bedroom, and is like, I gotta throw up! Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, you know, so that's always a great wake-up call at four in the morning. But she had been looking forward to this grandparents' weekend, because she wanted to bake with Grandma. She doesn't want to bake with me or, or Melinda. She wants to bake with Grandma. Hmm. And when she goes and bakes with Grandma, there's this empowerment and confidence that she gets. And again, I, I don't know if I've done something to discourage that or what at home, because it's not how she is at home with baking or cooking or even asking if she can help or participate. So I don't know if it's something with Grandma, I don't know if it's something I'm missing, but it I guess my answer is just trying to find those moments to understand the depth of why the child is asking in that moment. Do they just need that ounce of, you know, I love you, can you, can you help me, can you serve me, can you be alongside me, or, or if it's just a... a they want to watch cartoons and be lazy and you're already in the kitchen kind of thing. My answer is, is it hmm. kind of is entirely dependent on the moment, the relationship you have with the child and where they're at, you're at and what's going on. I, that's the best I can give you because I'm seeing this. I'm seeing this in, in my own child raising and trying to understand what are my kids' needs and how to balance that as best as I possibly can. And it's weird. I, I'm sure there are moments where I've probably failed and had an oversight, and instead of empowering, I've, I've not. Yeah. The thing I've told them is, look, I love you guys. I'm trying to do the best I can as a father. But the, the long and the short of it is... You guys didn't come with manuals. There is no magic perfect formula per child. I'm going to screw you up somehow, and where I screw you up, I am sorry. <laughs> tell me. As we grow older, mm -hmm. tell me. You know, don't just leave me out in the cold on this. And we can work through and talk through it. But I'm learning as you're learning. I hope someday that my children do listen to this, because I hope they see my humanity in that 
as parents, we have so much that we take into parenting, so much baggage, so much brokenness, so much unresolved issues. And then when we have children, children tax you and make you tired and make you just exhausted as much as you love them. And what happens when you are stressed in that way is sometimes terrible things come out of your mouth. What comes to mind in, in this context is they'll ask me for something or I have just gotten toast for one of them. And they are in front of the TV on a Saturday morning and the other one will ask me for toast and I'll sound and act frustrated and and put out that they're asking me for toast. And I, even as I'm doing it, I'm like, why, why? What's the big deal? If you don't want to have them get their own toast, <laughs> you know? Now, in, in your defense, you are outnumbered. You've got a two to one mm-hmm. ratio. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my household, it's one-to-one. So, I mean, that, that plays yeah. into it. It really does. Now, I, I will say this. I wanted four kids. I grew up in a family where there were four of us, four siblings. I wanted four kids, and then my wife said no, and I said, but I want four. And she said no, and then I realized I have no other say. So, <laughs> I have two. I love Melinda. <laughs> Melinda, I love you. You are a wonderful woman. (laughs) For the challenging free spirit of a teenager that I was, and I know I was, marrying a redhead was probably a wise idea because even where she puts up with my stupidity, she doesn't put up with my stupidity. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, but... There, there is also that element to consider because, I mean, you, I've got that one-to-one ratio, so I'm not dealing with four re- requests at once <laughs> or even two requests at once with two more waiting to, to pounce. It's, yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So. I so. appreciate your empathy. <laughs> well... <laughs> I will say this. I thought I was going to ha- have and understand that parenting thing. You know, I, I was in youth ministry before I was a parent. And I was like, ah, oh, I, I deal with teenagers. Yeah. I, pfft, whatever. This is going to be a cakewalk. And then I had a kid and it was, oh, <laughs> shit. I have no idea what I'm doing. Yep. I yeah. I went back to some of my parents in the youth group at the time. I was like, I'm sorry. I thought this parenting thing was a lot easier. Yeah. And I was dealing with like a three-month-old, and I was breaking. <laughs> it's hard. So, yeah, I it's and the manuals don't do it justice. Now, parenting is not our discussion of the morning, but it is kind of the premise of some of the questions that we have and the questions mm-hmm. kids ask, and you know, raising kids in faith, and yeah, good segue. Our initial premise, yeah. You're you're wonderful at that. You're like the Segway man, Mister Segway. <laughs> so I need a little Segway, the helmet. So I was thinking, I have some questions, and I want you to try to answer as if I was totally unchurched, or a kid that has you know you. That's kind of how you talk to kids too, right? No, no. But everything with. So there was a piece of wisdom that my youth pastor Jay shared with me when 
I don't know, I was like 18 or 19 and considering youth ministry as a career. And it was, don't, don't treat kids like kids. Just don't. Treat them like they're people. Treat them like they are small adult adults and you you treat them with that respect you get on their eye level you don't dismiss their questions as childish you just engage with them like they are yeah. adults with that level of respect and so for me it comes down to though when like I try to be on the kids level I try to not look at the questions as childish but look at them as truly curious and enabling for them to continue right. to grow what i meant was don't assume i know which is fine an alien from outer space somebody who has no understanding of church and christian words that's what i meant i didn't mean like no you're fine you're fine i'm yes i'm splitting hairs but all right go for your question how do you know that God exists. Can I ask you a question in return? I'm tempted to say no. <laughs> sure. What is the level of proof that you would require to know that God exists? No, no, no. No. No, why do we assume there's a God? Why is there a God? How do, why does there have to be a God? I don't need proof, but how do we know there's a God? Why? Why is there a God? Uh, well, hold on, hold on. Uh, it, it It's a bit of a hole in the logic, okay? Where you're saying you don't need proof, but you, you need to know... No, I want to know... Yeah, I want to know why you know there's a God. How do you know there's a God? Okay. Uh, so if it's why I know there's a God, that's a different answer. I And I know, I'm I'm maybe splitting hairs on this a little too much, but... All right. I guess I'll unpack it in this kind of way instead. That question, how do we know there is a God? That is a very personal question. It always is. Because each person has a different level of either evidence or experience that will answer the question for them. Does that make sense? I don't know, because logically, why do we logically conclude there's a God? I guess I don't know what it has to do with personal experience. Maybe it is a little bit, but how do we logically conclude that gravity exists or logically conclude that something has to be? So things like questions of physics, like gravity, okay, Let, let's go with that for a minute. That's something that we observe and have evidence of okay so i pick up this paper ball that's on my desk oh i had two of them there i pick it up i drop it they fall okay there's something that causes them to fall i can't see it but i can observe the effect they fall they physically go from my hand to the desk that satisfies our minds because there's evidentiary things that we can then extrapolate out and say this is why gravity makes sense okay Gravity makes sense because there's something, there's a unseen force pushing on objects, da-da-da-da-da, right? It satisfies our mind. The idea of God, just the idea of God, starting there, was our initial answers 
to how the systems of the world made sense. Our initial, our initial, Mm -hmm. right, because most people used to believe in gods. This is common. Back in the day, it explained Mm -hmm. natural phenomena. It explained things that they had no hooks for. They didn't understand why the sun rose every day. They didn't understand how rain worked or thunder worked. Right, and... Right. And so, you know, you would have this concept of if I don't do X, Y, or Z, then the sun won't raise tomorrow morning, or I will anger the gods and get struck by lightning. Because you have these evidentiary things that say, okay, you know, I I knew Joe. Joe was out in the rain and got struck by lightning. Obviously, he made the gods mad by not sacrificing the right kind of cattle. So he died. So now I can extrapolate out and create a system of belief based on observation. That doesn't entirely work as we continue to extrapolate, as our knowledge continues to expand. Okay? You're giving Mm. me a look. Okay. I, I guess I don't understand how that is, because for us, for Christians... How, where the world came from is one of the questions that is answered to our satisfaction. That is a big question. Also, why do we feel bad when we do things that are perceived as wrong? That's also a big question that is satisfied. You know, so it does answer questions just like it answered questions for the Norse or for the Greeks in the same way. But this is where I would argue things are different, okay? The initial premise of the the Norse, the Romans, the pantheonic idea of gods is based in the systems, okay? That we we observe weather, we observe sun, we observe da-da-da-da-da. Those must be controlled by something that is a deity base, okay? As we have grown in knowledge and understanding, it becomes less about that deity and more about, okay, lightning is giant static electricity in the sky. I'm crudely summarizing, but, you know, that's what it is. It's no longer Thor throwing thunderbolts at us. Where we are today, which is primarily monotheistic in a lot of ways, is trying to understand the human condition. Why am I bad when I want to be good? Why am I good when I desire to be bad? Why... What is sin? What is this idea and concept of separation from the best of who I am? Okay, the the moralistic and theological questions of what is the human condition. Okay. We're in an era where we can explore that more and more. And I, I would say that this is where God has moved us to, intentionally, through the ages, moving us past that that very basic religious belief in systematic and absolute weather, blah, 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 into the areas of understanding the human condition, which is why Christ came at the point he did, and why Christianity spread the way it did, because it was no longer, it no longer needed to be equative. We were beginning to understand and expand our knowledge to have it apply in such a manner that we could look and see God, not just as evidentiary in nature, but as evidentiary in the actions of our hearts, the intentions of our action, and who and how we interact and treat each other. 
because with the rise of Christ, we also see the demise of the pantheo- pantheo- pantheistic, there we go, religions. But as the pantheists are declined, Christ is ascending. So the evidentiary aspects of who God is becomes less about systems and nature and more about experience and who Christ is, less about religious and equative, you know, I do X, God does Y, and becomes the human condition being being better. You know, I I love the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount because it turns everything that is that expectation of I will do and God will do on its head. It it becomes I can't. God has this whole other system that is upside down from what the human condition is and it works. Yeah, it works. When we act as Christ would have us, as he laid out in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in living our lives in such a way that we're revealing Christ, it works. The kingdom works. Now, that doesn't answer the existence of God that you're wrestling with, and I might be meandering a bit, so forgive me. But I think what we need to tackle is that core question of, how do we know that God exists? And it's different for everyone. Uh, Some people see God's... Go ahead. Well, what you're kind of... I, I don't understand exactly, because what you're kind of saying is the questions people are asking are different now. They're more about the human condition, which is in quotations, because I don't really know what that means exactly. What does that exactly mean? That if the human condition could be explained any other way, then you would have a different explanation or different answer to the question of whether God exists. Good point. I think it's best that I give answer to the human condition, then. I think the human condition is best defined as seen in Genesis 3, okay? Genesis 3 is when the fall of man happens. Creation, garden, paradise, can you ref- and then suddenly we... Well, can you refer to anything else except the Bible? Go like, ahead. What if I don't believe... What if I don't know about the Bible? Or what if I don't believe the Bible is true yet? So you can't really use the Bible to say the Bible is... Yeah, absolutely. You know. Then it would be best phrased as this. Why is it that in a world where we look and we say that we want to be good, why does bad exist? Why does evil exist? It's that simple core question. If I want to be good, I can be, but then why are there people out there who just are bad? Yeah. Why does that happen? And that would be the best summary of the human condition. Why why in a world where we're trying to be better people, why does a Hitler exist? Why in a world where we're trying to be better people, why does a Vladimir Putin exist? Why? Nature sucks. If you look at nature, it's probably more yucky, more disturbing than it is not disturbing. And I say that to mean, I think there is nicer things about humans than there are about the animal kingdom. Like, have you ever heard of the cuckoo bird? 
I think I've discussed this because it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> the cuckoo bird or the tarantula wasp yes. or, you know, things like that. Well, the, the point is, why do we make ourselves special? What makes us different than animals in that sense? And if we are the same, then can there be such a thing as a human condition if we're all the same? It's this. When you look at nature... Nature is brutal. The animal kingdom is brutal. The human words that we would use to describe some of the things that can happen naturally in nature are very harsh. Okay, rape, murder, and destroy. That's a lot of what happens in the animal kingdom. Not always, you, you know. You go to TikTok and there are cute puppy videos and yay, nature is good. But you you go out into Africa, into the wilds of Africa, and the animal kingdom as it is balanced in its mm-hmm. natural system. I, I mean, you get a pride of lions and one a new uh, male lion. I'm a, a competitor. A, pe- a competitor comes in and, and they'll destroy the yeah. entire generation of lions, of young lion cubs. Because it's it's not his genetic. It's necessary for strength. him to establish his line. That's his genetic. Uh, oh, imperative. Right. So it's genetic imperative. You extrapolate all of this out, and it's okay. Yeah, nature is beautiful and wonderful, and entirely horrifying. Just like humans. Right. So then, are we really just that tribal? Are are we really just highly evolved monkeys who think we should be better, but in reality we should just be as brutal as the animal kingdom? So there's the question of, is our base morality even worth it? What do you mean? If, well, okay, so if if we're just highly evolved monkeys, okay, just, just that piece right there, if we're just highly evolved monkeys who have developed a consciousness and an ability to build tools to the point that we have accelerated our species evolution to the point that we are okay what does our morality even matter if we're just a a species in the animal kingdom that advanced what does it matter for us to have any kind of moral i think it matters to you and it matters to your person next to you it matters to the person you're taking care of and it matters to the person who took but care of you species doesn't I know, matter but i but i'm not sure if that matters because we have we have things that make us different than animals but this but we have reason we have the ability to reason we have the ability uh animals have the ability to learn and maybe they even have the ability to reason but there there are things that we do that help us become better and improve ourselves. Right. But it's it's this. if, And again, it's just going back to that. If we are just a part of the animal kingdom, do our morals really matter in the big picture of things? What is the big picture? Like, what do you mean? What is the big picture? That's part of the question. You're staring at. Well, me. I don't know. I I don't know. I like what are morals anyway? <laughs> Where do morals come from? Are they, you know, like I don't know that. Um... Uh, okay. All right. So, 
the question then becomes, what does it matter? If we're just highly evolved monkeys, do the morals matter? And where do they come from? And we're extrapolating a few levels out. These aren't questions that... So, a question I get from a kid that will ask this doesn't go this route with the conversation. They're, they're normally not extrapolating into this area, which is fine. I'm not saying that to knock on you. It's just the level of discussion always changes by person because by person, it is very, very much what they want to know, what they want to explore, and what they need is proof. So for me, reeling this back into the question, to the core question, is I see that there's a balance of things where there's, there is a God... And what we do to each other, with each other, how we live, matters. Or there is no God, and none of it matters. Why do you think... I, I mean, if, if... If, okay, so... If you extrapolate out, there is that element that, yes, it does matter because you want the species to propagate, so how do you continue to propagate the species... And the end answer to that, have you ever, Melinda and I are watching this, have you ever watched the Amazon Prime series Upload? Mm -hmm. That show, like, hits this area of existential horror for me, because it's, part of our question is what happens after death, and that, that show, in a comical way, says, you know, that question will eventually be answered by uploading the human consciousness to a computer, and when you do that, and this is where it's comical, when you upload a human consciousness to a computer, what does that mean? Who has ownership of the hard drive that you now exist on? Is it right to charge money to exist after death for the program that you live on? Stuff like that, okay? So there's an extrapolative horror that occurs in that show for me. But if you go with just the animalistic, we exist because we're highly evolved monkeys, then the only reason it matters what we do to each other is for the continued existence of the species, which means that we want to we have a concern about what we do to each other because murdering everybody, which we have the ability to do, is not good for the continued existence of the species. But it doesn't really matter. <sighs> Believing that there is a god to me, matters because then it means that what I do now has some form of interaction in an eternal that I don't fully understand, but fully believe in, okay? To me, that's a logical connection. There's a moral code that I believe in that has a base in scripture, that has a base in the belief system of Christianity that I, I follow, I teach, I preach, that started with the Ten Commandments, that is founded in Christ in what he has done through sacrifice on the cross, through the, the teachings of the New Testament, of uh, the teachings of the Gospels, that means that what we do to each other matters in an eternal sense. And to me, that that's one of the proofs of God, okay? For me. So it has to matter 
because otherwise what's the point? That's your, that's what you're saying? God exists because it, all, it has to matter. Otherwise, what's the point? That's what you're saying. To, to me, yeah. That's, that's one of the things that to me matters. Okay. That is an evidentiary piece But that's not evidence. Of... That just makes you feel good. It just makes you feel comforted and happy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's proof. That's not really... This is why I asked at the beginning, what is the level of proof that you want? Logical. I want logical proof. Not that you're... I understand you are using logic, but what you're resting it on is sort of like, well, ultimately, it just makes me feel better. Because... And what's wrong with that end conclusion? Well, does 3 plus 3 equals 6 make me feel better or worse? It doesn't really matter, because 3 plus 3 is 6. It doesn't have anything to do with my feelings. Yeah, but if I have to figure out if 3 plus 3 equals 6, and I'm only making a 6-foot jump, versus, you know, 3 plus 3 being 60 feet, you know, 30 and 30, and I have to make a 60-foot jump. I, it, it's a math I don't get what you're saying. <laughs> you lost me. I'm going in a weird spot, yeah. So, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rude or mean. What, okay, what is wrong about feeling good let's there's let's nothing wrong with it in fact it's a great anest it's, if it anesthetizes you and gets you through life cool why why ruin that that's right i mean that would be fantastic but that doesn't just but. because i think the titanic is unsinkable doesn't mean the titanic's unsinkable but let's just drink gin and tonics and hope for the best but i just I just kind of want more than it feels good to believe that when I die, there's not nothing. Of course it feels better to think that. So then a, a level of proof for you is not if you feel good, you need something a little more solid. Well, let's define what is proof. I, I tried to do that at the beginning and you fought me. <laughs> so for you, what is the level of proof? No, no, that define you... proof. Like define the word proof. Proof would be what draws us to the end conclusion. That's different. But here's the catch, and this is where I'm trying not to go. In proof that God exists, yeah. Okay, I can never offer you do X, Y, and Z, and God will magically reveal himself, the sky will split, and you'd be like, oh, that's God. Got it. Great. I get it. Right. I know that. There will always be, and I've tried not to say this, because I know how your mind works, <laughs> there will always be an element of faith that we have to leap from where we're at to God exists. I, I can't offer you the, the bridge to get there. You have to have that faith leap of, look, I think this is why God exists. This is part of the reason I hang my hat on God's existence is... It, Whatever it is. But you still have to leap to, yes, I believe. And faith is a, a huge part of what it is to believe. It's a huge part of looking and saying God exists. And there are, there are lots of journeys to get to that point. There are lots of pieces that people have said, this is why God exists. One of them for me is, again, that, that moralistic, that if we're just evolved monkeys, then nothing we do matters. It doesn't. The moral codes we have don't matter. And I don't get that. I don't buy that. 
I really don't. I can't believe that life exists and it doesn't matter what we do with it. But if you read a book that explained morals, would that help you? If you... I have read books that explain morals. I've read philosophers that explain and tackle morals. But here's the thing. There are so many thoughts of philosophy and thought on Jeremy Bentham, who was a philosopher in the 1700s. I'm forgetting roughly when. Uh, he, he's someone that I've read and written about in the past. His moral philosophy drew him to a point of living a hedonistic lifestyle. Live, live the moment, because this is what you get. This is all you get. So he indulged in every pleasure that he could. He, he lived his life to the fullest. But at the end of the day, there was nothing for him. He would die, and that was it. So he lived up every moment, he died, and that was it. But he wasn't settled with that. So when he died, he actually gave a bunch of his property to... Uh, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like the University of London or mm. something. I forget what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And there was a condition to it that they had to preserve his body. Mm. Mm. and display it somewhere in the college. And so for decades, generations, his body was preserved and displayed. And now the only thing that's really left is like his head. But they have a straw dummy of him done up and his head next to the the dummy. And it got to the point where f they had to put it under lock and key because frat boys would go and steal his head. So his moral philosophy took him to this point of... You know, life is only in the moment, but there's this eternal peace to him that goes, I don't want to be forgotten. So to not be forgotten, I'm going to make this land donation. I'm going to have them preserve my body. I mean, they, they've wheeled him out to board meetings. And that moral philosophy drew him to the point where frat boys are stealing his head as part of their initiation and in drinking games. And that's depressing. That's terrifying. And I, I use him as an example because he, he's a great example of that. But there are others who, you know, they, they come to that logical end of life and it's... They're scared. Again, that... Right. And I think there's a reason we're scared. I think, again, there's a, an echo that is eternity within us that has us draw to that point of end of life and we fear it, and we fear it because something deeper within us doesn't say, I am a highly evolved monkey and nothing I do matter. I think there is a peace within us. And again, this is also that, that evidentiary for me that says there is something greater than being a highly evolved monkey and just getting as much sex so I can propagate my, my genetic line. I think there's more than that. So for me, again, it's it's drawing that chain out there. But there are other pieces that also draw me to that point. There are other pieces that have me looking and saying it, it's not just highly evolved monkeyism. Uh, there's, uh, to me, I look at creation and I see God's fingerprints all over it. I, I look at how we have so many questions, even the base models of what creation are. They're working theories, and we kind of keep tweaking them because we learn new things. 
And to me, that's just evidence of God. That there is a creator God who did this beautiful act of creation that has us seeking to understand it. And it's a great and wonderful mystery. Even in our base understandings of that mystery, we're still finding new levels to go, wow, this is great. This is awesome and magnificent. Okay. Um, Which again is why I go back and I say, what is the level of proof that you want, that you need? Okay. I feel stuck between, I don't think I'm smart enough to understand, like, mathematically how God has to exist. I know there are proofs out there, but I just can't understand them. And I wish I could because I think it would help me. I, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight you on that. (laughs) This book is called Five Proofs of the Existence of God, and I am not smart enough to read it. And that makes me sad because I think it would help me. <laughs> so with the the mathematic proofs that people have used to say, look, there is a God. There is 99.99% of the world is not smart enough to understand the evidentiary mathematic proofs that say God exists. Okay? I don't even think those are mathematical. But, but they're philosophical. They're not mathematical. But carry on. Some people have made the mathematical argument that, look, because we, uh, what is it? There's someone who did a mathematic equation that said there are like seven to 11 dimensions or whatever that mathematic math is. is. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, when we've gone past using numbers and gone into using like weird symbols, that's a math I don't understand. I never got out of algebra in high school, so I don't understand that math. And even those who got into calculus and trig, the the math, the level of math to understand some of those theoretical proofs of God's existence or dimensional arguments for God and, and heaven and hell, those are not where laymen or theologians will exist and argue. They're there, they're interesting, but I, they're a level of understanding beyond all of us, really. Yeah, but feeling good or bad isn't enough for me. Okay, so that's not a level of proof that you need. Okay, you know how... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. When you do something that you're really afraid to do, but everybody else is doing it and happy doing it, but you're still really afraid to do it. Like mm-hmm. going on a boat that looks kind of sketchy or... You just have, like, the sick dread feeling you have in your stomach. Yeah. But you do the thing anyway. Like, you go out on the raft anyway, or you jump out of the plane with your parachute anyway, even though you're sick to your stomach and you want to vomit. But that would be a bad idea skydiving, I'm sure. We're gonna die! We're gonna die! I'm going to throw up, and then I'm gonna die! That's how I feel. (laughs) Like, that's what my feelings say. So even though in my brain, sorry, damn it. Um, my brain thinks it'd be so much easier if I just believed it and could just sit down and shut up like everybody else because it makes it easier to talk to my kids about church. It makes it easier 
to try hard, to try in Christianity. But um, I just always have that feeling, even when I'm trying, to believe. We've talked about this in the past. A little bit. And I know you wanted me to make my arguments out of Scripture for the moment, but I have to go into Scripture. The men and women in Scripture who act, believe, and have faith in God, who we hold up as heroes of faith, didn't do it without doubt. Moses. Moses, who is key in the founding of of Judaism, who is a key to the morals and beliefs that we have in Christianity. Moses, who is held up as, as a prophet, who would return and in the transfiguration of Christ is there and revealed, he doubted. He doubted enough that he struck the rock three times, which was showing he was going to be the one to break it, not God, so that the water would come out. And it was enough doubt that God looked and said, look, I've walked with you. You've seen me. He's one of two people who have seen God in Scripture, in the belief that I hold. And he doubted enough that God said, you are not going to the promised land. You get to see it from a ridge and then die. But you're not going in. You're out. Sorry. And it was just enough doubt that it train wrecked Moses. Elijah, again, one of the figures that is is seen in Transfiguration, one of the two prophets who is held as having faith that got him to the point where he never tasted death. He was taken up in a whirlwind of fire and a chariot. And Elisha, who was his predecessor, saw him being taken to heaven. Elijah was this manic depressive who was very much, you know what, just burn the world. I, I You exist. I called fire down. We killed a thousand false prophets. And I'm going to go hide in a cave because no one believes. And I, I'm struggling with my belief. He comes from this, this moment where God shows up, God reveals himself, and God physically proclaims himself against the false prophets. And he goes and hides in a cave and cries for 40 days. Not cries, but is very mopey for 40 days. Mm-hmm. And he shows up at the Transfiguration. He's one of two people in Scripture that we hold never truly tasted death. Jesus tastes death, and he's the son of God. Except for Enoch and Elijah. Enoch's the only person that we might be able to say was holy, but outside of apocryphal text. In Scripture, we we don't know. We just have this little blurb. He walked with God and was no more. It's a whole little thing we'll have to talk about at some point. <clears throat> hmm. You have the men who walked with Jesus, the twelve disciples, who saw the miracles, who saw God in the flesh, who saw life restored to the dead, who saw miracles of flesh healed, sicknesses driven out, demons driven out. A herd of pigs flying off a cliff filled with demons, squealing. I mean, that's not something you forget. <laughs> they flew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says they went right off the cliff into the re- the sea, you know. So yeah, you know, you've got pigs who are going. 
Yeah. When pigs <laughs> That's fly. That's where the expression okay. came from. <laughs> so you have these men who walked with Christ. And what do you do with the level of miracles that you see? Peter walked with them enough that he's going, okay, he's walking on the water. I can get out of the water. I can walk on the water. I can take two steps and drown. He's with Christ, God in the flesh. He has enough faith to get out of the boat and then immediately doubt himself. You have James and John who go from, we believe, we're diehard fans. And I, I love James, I love Peter. I love James and John because they expositionally provide these incredible moments. You've got Peter who, he's like this New Testament screw up. I've said this time and time again. He just, he opens his mouth, inserts his foot, and Jesus is like, no, no, come on. You're so close, but not there. Which is comforting to me because it's like that's how I feel sometimes, where it's I'm so close, but I'm not there. And I'm generations out from Christ walking in faith. So if Peter's walking in faith and not getting it, I'm okay. I'm doing good. James and John, who are, yeah, we get it. We get it enough that we want to call down fire on these villages instead of loving them. And she's like, nope, nope, not getting it yet. That's the old way. That's the equative. Yeah. You know, I. They do X, I do Y. Nah, that's not how it works. Grace. You get um, Thomas, who, you know, he saw Lazarus come back from the life. He saw thousands being fed. He saw the miracle, that the last miracle before the resurrection of Peter's trying to kill the, the temple servant. You, you don't cut a dude's ear off if you're not aiming for his head. He wants to cleave his head. He misses and gets his ear. And Thomas had to be there. He had to see, even in the chaos of the moment. Again, Jesus puts the dude's ear back on. And Thomas is hiding in a building saying, I, I don't believe it. I know he raised Lazarus, but I'm not going to believe it until I, I put my hand in his side, till I touch the scars. Mm. And when you get that, and this is a man who saw the crucifixion, and if... Even half of what is in the New Testament happened at the crucifixion. We, we do this thing. I, I'm forgetting what the service is called, but we have a, a Monday, Thursday service, and then we have a Good Friday service at the church. And the Good Friday service is always, it's a kick to the gut, okay? I'm getting shaky and excited over here. Our Good Friday service, we walk through... I'm going to say we call it a service of light and darkness, but we, we start the service with all the lights on, and then we slowly start pulling the light out of the sanctuary. The lights start dimming, <laughs> and, and at the moment of crucifixion, in the service order, the Christ candle is the only thing lit. And it goes from the front of the sanctuary and walks out and is extinguished. And the sanctuary is left in darkness. And we do that because in, in the crucifixion narratives, what we see is that the earth shakes. Darkness settles in the land. The, the curtain temple separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place is ripped. Not you know from the, the bottom up, it's ripped from the top down which in its way is symbolic and huge because it's the presence of God is no longer bound to a single place. 
it's been set free. And and to me, I look at that, and I'm going to go on a brief rabbit trail. I look at that and see that the very foundation of the earth is shaken because the presence of God is set loose, not confined to a physical place anymore, but confined to us, his people, everywhere. So if even half of those things happened at the crucifixion of Christ, the people who were there, doubting Thomas who was there, would have seen them. And again, something had to make them go, this is different. But Thomas, who has seen these things, seen these miracles, still, after the rumors of resurrection, is going, I can't believe. I, I draw this out because we don't do well in the church with doubt. If you doubt, you must have faith. If you doubt, you must have faith. Holy smokes, if we doubted... If we were there with the disciples, with the apostles, how often would we hear a pastor say, oh, you're doubting Jesus, just have faith. Whereas Jesus is embracing their doubt and saying, pick yourself up, try again, it's okay. Peter gets out of the boat, and I said this already, he doubts, he sinks, and Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, and he doesn't just leave him there to save himself. He helps. He helps us make that gap. Jesus doesn't look at Thomas and say, no, no, I'm not going to appear to you. You you don't get it. I, you're out. Sorry. Bye. He appears to him and says, all right, you, you want to put your hands in my side, touch the scars. Here you go. And I think that's where we fail as a church. Because the answer is, yes, have faith. But have faith doesn't mean I don't doubt. The heroes of faith didn't, didn't just walk in faith blindly. They asked questions. They doubted. They wrestled with faith. And I think that is more genuine than saying faith, faith, faith. Mm -hmm. And... I'm saying all of this to you. I'm going on a, a soapbox because I think you, specifically you, and maybe some of you, our listeners, are in the same spot as well, and that's okay. I don't, I don't demand that you have to believe in what I believe or believe the way I believe. But if you are a Christian and you walk with doubt, you walk with questions... That's okay. You are not any less of a Christian for having a doubt. You are not any less of a believer, a skeptic, or individual faith. You are nothing less for having doubt. And that's okay. Asking questions and not being able to make the, the jump from head to heart is okay. Mm-hmm. I think what is important, and this is where I keep camping and will continue to camp, is the journey. And sometimes the journey means that, yeah, we, we, we continue to walk even when we don't feel like we have faith. But continuing to walk is the faith. We may not feel like we have faith, but continuing to walk is a part of action of faith. 
What does that mean? Continuing to walk. What do you mean? I, I've spoken to this a little bit before, but like, there are two points in my life where either my faith was mostly dead or I was done with the church. And that's kind of in, in the order. In my early 20s, before the young adult program, I grew up in the church. There is that kind of glamour and veneer of security to to faith that I had. And when I became an adult in the church, when I saw some of the politics of the church, when I saw some of the failures and worst sides of the church, I, I still stayed with the church. But the, if you will, the turkey timer on my faith dinged. I, w I was done. I, yeah, the church is a good vehicle for the moralistic aspects. And, and that's where I existed. It, it was, it was a good vehicle of trying to teach us to be good people. And if this is the vehicle by which God actually is going to teach us to be good people, how can I believe in God? And, and that was because I had, my faith was in the church more than it was in God. And and so for me, that was a period of walking into, ag I'd say it was borderline agnosticism, but it, it really was. That if there was a God, it was this larger concept that just kind of set us up and let us go. And we poorly understood things. But I kept at it. I kept walking and working with the church. And what started to happen is, is my faith was separated from the church and became rooted in Christ more. Because it was, well, okay, I, I still attend, so I need to read the Bible. And I, I referenced this last week, but C.S. Lewis put it where you, if you're going to believe, there aren't two, you, you can't read enough books to disprove it kind of thing. I'm poorly quoting from it, but... Knowledge eventually draws us there. My faith began to revitalize, not because of anything the church did, but because of what Christ began to do. And there were some other hits that my faith took after that young adult program that were still shaky. But there was a new growth of faith that was happening that, that was drawing me out of that period of agnosticism that was seeing that faith isn't based in the church, faith is based in Christ, and Christ is independent of the church. There's a whole thing. Hmm. But then there's a point where I hit, I reached burnout. I, and I, I, I've spoken to this as well in the podcast in the past, where I reached a point of burnout. I was done. I was not going to work and serve for a church any longer. I reached a point that I was going to go and just get a job, a regular job, outside of church to provide for my family, to provide for my wife and kids, because I was done with the church. My faith was okay, my faith was intact, but again, it was that, that burnout. So our journey, I share that because the journey is always... You may reach burnouts, you may reach points of disbelief, but sometimes just walking and continuing 
even though you may not feel it, God reveals himself. It sounds very platitude-y, where it's just, just keep going, and, and it, it, it is. And it is because that's my experience. I kept going, even though my faith was on life support, or I was just that burnt out that I was pretty sure God was done with, with me and my ministry. And I, I kept walking, or fell off a ladder and stopped walking and had to sit on my butt and listen to God, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I I think I had, what, like 20 minutes there of being impassioned and sermonizing and not intending to. <laughs> I don't know if you feel any better or if that answers anything. But I guess this is my my 10-second summary. It's okay to doubt, Lindsay. It's okay to ask questions. And if you're ever told to feel guilty or bad about that, that's not what's in Scripture. It's not. In Scripture, we see it's okay to doubt. And even the heroes of our faith doubted. But there is an element of faith that has to leap us from what are our evidentiary arguments, whether it's I feel better about life because I don't think we're just monkeys who want to propagate because we're monkeys. Which leaves me at that final question for you of what is that that level of proof you desire and I don't ask that as a, I can provide that or I can make some reasoned argument. But I think it's okay to ask, what is the level of proof I desire? And having that answer, maybe, not maybe, but I think that will help you at least understand the journey. The question of, do I believe? Hmm. And can I close that gap? The, the answer I give when kids ask me this question, because you wanted that premise up front, and I didn't give it, is that God is very personal and involved for each of us. So when we ask the question, if God exists, he wants to answer it. But for you. And for me... I can give you my reasons, and I am happy to talk all day about those. I only I only talked about one of them, really. We didn't talk about the beauty of creation, the evidence I see in creation. We didn't talk about the evidence I see in family and friends and relationship and community. Oh my gosh, I love the aspects of community that are revealing of the nature of God and, and existence of God. I didn't even get into those. And that's part of what you and I are building and doing in these conversations. And having a conversation at the beginning of how do we do this parenting thing? And finding love and yeah. support. I think I'm g going to ask a friend of mine who has tried to help me in this area before, but I was too embarrassed to tell him I didn't understand <laughs> what he was saying. Because I'm going to ask him again, and this time I'm going to 
let him know when I don't understand and can you break it down more because I don't I don't get it and I'm gonna see what happens and maybe I'll come back to you I, I, um, I don't know if it'll be by next time but because just having something to logically sit on would help me <laughs> and that's okay that is and, and like I said for for me there's no one single point where I'm like, this is the pure logic that is where I hang my hat and believe. It, it really is. It's, you know, here here's logic one that gets me so far, and then there's the jump of belief. Here's logic two, it, you know, the, the signs of creation, the, the beauty of the systems around us, you know, the, the community. The, there are all things that get me to a point, but then I make a leap of faith that is God exists. And yeah, you know what? That. Sometimes that leap of faith means I jump and smack into a wall and go, ooh, maybe, maybe there's a little more to this that I can ask or question and explore. That's okay. I don't yeah. think science can ever 100% prove to me God's existence or lack of existence. So I don't look at that and go, the math equations of some guy who uses symbols will make sense to me. That. I can barely understand my taxes. You expect me to understand advanced math or multidimensional mathematics? Yeah, forget that. Mm. Mm-hmm. So. Probably a good spot to end. <laughs> multi Multidimensional mathematics feel like taxes? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or taxes feel like multidimensional <laughs> mathematics. There we go. That's better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I appreciate this, and I kind of want to keep going. I don't know. We'll keep in touch this week and further, because I, I feel like there's a lot of questions. I feel like um, the Bible is another one. Like you kind of have to establish there is a God first, but then once you establish there is a God, how do we know it's the Bible? Type thing. Oh really? <laughs> this is the chicken yep. or the egg conversation. Which came first? Huh. The Bible or Scripture? That's the chicken and the egg. I just mean the scripture, right? I, know. I just mean the scripture. I know. Okay. I'm I, to me, that's a circular logical argument because you want proof of God's existence, but we want to question scripture. That's a chicken and an egg. That's well, not I, what I, I said. I, I know, that's I know, I but that's part of oh. the that's part of the the questioning of faith. That I'm not saying of you in particular, but it's the never mind. Okay. Well, we'll get back to that at some point because I have questions. But all I right, need to go all right. Now. Hold on. Hold on. I have one quick question for you. Mm-hmm. You've read Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Which house do you think you belong in? Ravenclaw. Hmm. Really? Yeah, it seems like the bookiest one. Like, I don't mm-hmm. really understand why Hermione is in Gryffindor, actually. I think she would have done much better in Ravenclaw. I don't. I know, this seems like a weird question, but Ravenclaw's abstraction in thought. What? That's not what it says? Yeah, it what is. What are you talking about? Luna Love Good. This is not abstract enough for you? You are by far <laughs> more logical. I think you would have been a Gryffindor. No. Yes. This is where I live. This is where I live is thinking about abstract thoughts. And logic is just a part of it, but it's all logical. It's all abstract. None of it's, none of it's concrete. <laughs> I think you're a Gryffindor. Okay. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a Gryffindor, and you don't like that. All right, I don't. Fine. I don't. Mm-mm. 
I, which is why I think you're a Gryffindor. <laughs> like, how do you All feel right. about the character Luna Lovegood? She was cool. <laughs> she was cool, but I mean, are you okay with that level of flighty, abstractive thought? Yeah, I could okay. abstract thought all day long, but it's kind of right. like where we're what, like with Christianity. This is like what we're basing our entire existence on. That's important. Yes. So that's why this is worth figuring out because I'm t- ba- this is what I'm going to spend my money on. It's what I'm going to spend my time on. It's what I'm going to give my children to and educate them in. That's huge. So, yeah, this is it's worth to me figuring it out for concrete that's where the abstraction comes in though because you can have it's not always a hundred percent concrete there's always that leap of faith there's always that gap i know but i just need to sit somewhere i'm not ready i I, it's like the gap isn't it's not there i mean i'm making it sound like i'm not even a christian i think i am you know (laughs) like i but i i just i don't feel safe i don't feel like i feel like i'm like i'm on the titanic and i'm like look at my i'm white knuckling it and i'm like sick to my stomach because i'm not sure like how how, why why can i rest like i I just need something to you need a certainty more than it feels good because you know what my feelings have failed me all my life and you can't base anything on feelings Right. You can't like, for instance, whether you like something or not doesn't make it true or not true. So based on that experience, I cannot be satisfied with I feel safe because I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. Whether I feel safe or not or good or not or less scared or not does not to me qualify as a truth. And so I need a little more than. What my feelings because I think my logic has developed over time because because my feelings have screwed me up, screwed me over, confused the heck out of me, and other people's feelings have confused me. So logic to me is a safe space. Math is a safe space. I don't understand math, but I wish I could better. Like I, w- I wish I could go back to school and take math classes or logic classes, and because I, this is my safe space. This is. Spice, this is my face, safe spice. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm, I'm just talking in circles now. No, 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 that's okay. That's, again, we're getting at the heart of it. You know, I, I'm, I spoke to Faith, to my side of the journey. You're speaking to your side. You're speaking to what it is that you're you're wrestling with and why you're wrestling with it. And, again, that's okay. That gives context to what's going on and why it's happening. Mm-hmm. And that's important because it doesn't diminish your faith. It answers why your faith is. It's it's context. Yeah. So you, if you're going to write a good story, you need to have the context of the character. And this is the context of Lindsay, the character. This is the context mm-hmm. of Lindsay, your journey. And... That is perfectly okay. You know, for me, because I, I'm, I like to think I'm logical, but my logic is different from that pure, you know, A must equal B. My logic is 
is a little more abstractive, okay? A can be C or B, it doesn't matter the order, and thank goodness for dyslexia, because it's all confusing anyway in my head, so <laughs> somehow it works. But because of that, my failures and struggles in faith and doubts in faith come around the humanity side of things. They don't come into that pure logical stance that says it has to be A, B, C, or one, two, three, for it to make sense. It comes into looking at the humanity side of things. So when I give an answer to faith, it's focused in how I see humanity working. Mm -hmm. When you give an answer to faith, it, it has to have an element of that, that logic that flows out in a linear order. I'm not linear. I'm, I'm circular in thought. Uh, I'm, I'm circular in my logic. I can come back to the points. I can jump around. I know. Them. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a scribble in how my logic works. And I actually have to be very intentional about trying to think through and lay things out, which is why I can loop around on things. So... I just had this image in my head. We'll wrap up. I'm sorry. I know it's been it's been longer than usual, but I just had this image in my head of like Abraham and Isaac or so p me putting myself in a position of I've got my child in my arms and they depend on me for they trust me. They believe every single thing I say and God is asking me to give my child to him on the altar which may or may not look scary, but it's an altar. And that is so mind-blowingly scary to me. Or sobering. Not scary. It's not like a fear or horror. It's just, I take that so seriously. And I just... What, what other people are doing isn't enough for me. You know, I just... I need something to help me because it's hard for me to put my children down on that. And you know what? It's okay to look at that and feel horror at that. It is. Now, the tough part is that we always extrapolate out and look, this happened because God had a bigger plan and action in motion. But at the end of the day, for Abraham, Abraham didn't have the benefit of thousands of years and a book of uh, stories and journeys that point to a God. He had a voice in his head that said, go take Isaac, put him on an altar, and stab him to death. Uh, are you sure about that? Did I hear that right? Can I get some verification? <laughs> <laughs> but he acts in faith he he makes this jump from yeah this kind of makes sense but not really but yeah so he must have really believed that he was hearing from god really he, he right? had a level of evidence that we don't have today with his relationship with god and there are arguments about what and how and why that we can have later but at the end of the day, he acted in faith, and we can look back and we can see the grand picture of faith and the grand journey of faith, but he made a leap of faith that does not make sense. When we look at it in the moment, when we look at it with honest, open eyes, we should have questions. 
So you looking and saying, I have questions, that's honest and open. That's okay. Mm -hmm. So that should be where we end it. Let's go. I'm out of tea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But we appreciate (laughs) anybody who's stuck with us this long. You must really like us. So, or I begged you to listen in particular. (laughs) So thank you. Whoever is listening, we appreciate it. We love you. If you guys have questions or or if there's a flaw in our logic, like this is awesome. I would love for you to tell me where I'm going wrong in my logic or how to explain. If you anybody wants to explain to me logically how God exists, I would love to hear from you. That'd be pretty cool to have you on the show and we could have a discussion about that. Absolutely. So, anyway. And we're going to be, I guess, in this because this is question one and you had like 10 more. That you want to ambush yeah. me with. So <laughs> they, we're gonna and they be, definitely build off of this one. Yeah. yeah, so we're going to be asking some questions, again, f- centered on what we do and don't ask as adults, what kids ask, questions that don't be afraid to ask. Hi, I'm in mm. youth ministry. I get some of the greatest, weirdest questions. And I love it. I, I, love, I, I love it when kids ask. I love having these conversations. Yeah, I might get preachy, but Lindsay can yell at me for stuff like that. You're welcome to yell at me, but, you know, uh, thank you for joining the conversation. And if if we've earned it, please give us a like and review, because that really does help us out with continuing to grow this podcast. Yeah. Because yeah. the algorithm is almighty algorithm. Mm. So, thanks a bunch. See you later. Yep, see ya. Thank you for listening to The 42 Podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe. And if you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter to add your voice to the conversation. Thank you.